Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right. Well, welcome in, everyone. What an awesome day it is today. Today was a record breaker for Apex events. I have to say, in my six years of doing Apex events, we have never had an event that was so maxed out in capacity. And it's because of the guest that is sitting across the table. I am joined in the studio today by the incredible, the fabulous Temple Grandin. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great uh, talking to everybody today. It has been such an amazing time. I mean, as I said, it, the, it was bursting at the seams. We had hundreds and hundreds of people here to see you. Your background ranges so many different areas, and I'd love to just get into it. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do right now in your working career? Well, I am a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. I've been there for many, many years. And the research I work on there is on uh, mostly cattle behavior, also some horse behavior research, uh, temperament of animals, um, how horses perceive novel objects. It's a project we just finished up now. I've also done a lot of work on designing uh, livestock handling facilities for large meatpacking plants. There's a piece of equipment called a center track restrainer system I've designed for large plants and all the big plants. Worked on these big heavy construction projects in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and I started out in the feedlots out in Arizona uh, learning about cattle handling and designing facilities and working on improving how cattle were handled. What was the first moment? Because you, you grew up in the East. What was that first moment like when you first got exposed to cattle? Well, this brings up a really important thing about students. Students get interested in things they get exposed to. And when I was in high school and I was getting bullied and teased in high school, it was horses. But again, I had to be exposed to them Mm -hmm. to get interested. And I think some people know that when I was a child, I had no speech until age four. I was a severely autistic child. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that... um, you know, someone's got a two-year-old or three-year-old's not talking. They're working right now on good early intervention and teaching, get them talking. And I had a lot of excellent teachers when I was in school, yeah. like my science teacher. I was a bored student that didn't care about studying, and he got me interested in studying. Yeah. Mentors that can help uh, develop a person are just so important. Yeah. And when you started working with cattle, uh, you uh, very famously kind of got down at their level and really saw it. And and can you talk about that experience and what made you think to do that? Well, I'm an extreme visual thinker. Everything I think about is in pictures. I talk about that in my book, uh, Thinking in Pictures. And it also shown very nicely in an HBO movie they made about me on, on how I think in pictures. And I noticed as cattle were going through the chutes in the Arizona feed yards to get vaccinated, this would have been back in the 70s, that they might stop at a shadow. There might be a coat on a fence. Some little thing most people don't notice. 
the cattle would stop at that. So it was obvious for me to get down in the chutes and see what they were seeing. I'd take pictures from a cow's eye view. And I was noticing things other people didn't notice. Now, at that time, when I was in my 20s, I didn't know that a lot of other people think mainly in words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they wouldn't think to get in the chute to look at what cattle were seeing. Mm -hmm. But to me, that was obvious. And if you remove the distractions, like let's say you take the coat off the fence, you move the truck that's parked alongside the facility— then the cattle would be a lot more willing to go through the facility. I call that removing the distractions. Right. Very, very simple thing you can do that can sometimes really improve handling. Right. And and then when you got into the design process, did you see in your mind how the machinery should be? Uh, or did that develop through the act of drawing? How did that come to well, be? Well, the first thing I did when I started out in my 20s back in the Arizona feed yards, I went to every feed yard in Arizona and I worked cattle in the facility. And then I took pictures and drawings of that facility, and I kind of looked at what parts of that facility worked. Mm. And I took all the good bits and put them together in the new systems. But I went out and I looked at a lot of different things, from really bad things to really good things, or there might be one layout where one part of it was really good, but the other part didn't work very well. Um, that's how I got started uh, designing um, cattle handling facilities, and then since I was weird and different, how did I sell my work to people? Well, when I finally um, got a some projects, I would show people my drawings. I'd show people pictures of jobs. I would show off my work. In fact, I talked to a young lady today uh, at the luncheon, very talented in making costumes for like Shakespearean plays. Mm-hmm. And I said, you've got work there that's really professional. Mm-hmm. And the way you need to sell that is you need to just show off the costumes that you made. You could be making costumes for the Shakespeare Festival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see, that's an example of showing your work. I learned to sell my work rather than myself. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that's, I think, such an important component. Um, one of the things that a lot of students do is they say, I want to do this or I, I want to do this. But then they don't have that work to show and get it out there. So it seems like that was really important in your development. Well, yes. Another thing is I saw doors to opportunity. There is a scene in the HBO movie where I go up to the editor of our state farm magazine, the Arizona Fire Ranchman. I would have been in my 20s. And I got this card because I knew if I wrote for that magazine, that would really, really help my career. Yeah. And then after I got his card, I then... um, wrote a summary of my master's thesis work on cattle behavior in different spray shoots. So once I got the card, then I produced a decent article. And then a few months later, I became livestock editor for the farmer ranchman. And that got me access to all kinds of, of places. Yeah. Um, and I would do things like do the show and sale results and then get to do you know, interesting feature articles. Yeah. But a lot of people don't see the door or they don't have the guts to go up and get the card. What advice do you have, I mean, not just for young people growing up with, with autism, but for, for everyone to develop the confidence to make that step? Well, and I remember when I got I was asked to do my very first big job, which was designing the dipping vat system that was shown in the movie. And I was maybe at the, you know, 60% level of, you know, knowledge. I knew all the cattle handling stuff, but I had no idea how to do the concrete reinforcement for the tank. Right. And I said, give me three weeks. Got to remember, this is pre-internet. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, I knew some people I could call to get the drawings for the concrete reinforcing rod. I didn't try to wing it. Mm-hmm. You've got to ask for help when you need it. That's mm-hmm. another mistake that people make, not asking for help. 
because I had to get very specific engineering drawings on how to do the concrete um, reinforcement, and I got them. Um, but some people are scared to take a job unless they're, they're 95% knowledge. No, I was maybe 60 or 70% knowledge. But then I got on that phone, and we call it the horn back in those days. Yeah, yeah. And I got the information. Yeah. And I think one of the things that helped me with the confidence, and I'm seeing a lot of kids with autism today are um, scared to do stuff. Well, I was selling candy for charity as a kid mm-hmm. uh, when the parents had parties in our neighborhood. All the kids had to put on their good clothes and be little party hosts and hostesses and learn how to shake hands with the guests mm-hmm. and talk to them. Yeah. And that teaches really important social skills. Yeah. So then I wasn't afraid to go up and ask for the card. Well, that early work ethic, I, you've t- you talked about it in your talk today, and uh, I love this aspect of it. Can you talk a little bit more about the your feeling of the importance of that? Uh, go a little deeper into that. Uh, how important is this for young people to get working right away? What kinds of things can they be doing? What sort of skills can they develop from that? Well, I talked to a grandfather just today who's discovered he's on the um, autism spectrum, and he's a pharmacist. I just mm-hmm. talked to him today, and I've talked to others that were IT or they were computers or they were uh, accountants. And all of those granddads had early jobs like paper routes. Yeah. Now, I know paper routes are gone, but let's look at substitutes for paper routes. So it's very important for the kid to learn how to do a task outside the home on a schedule where somebody else is the boss. How about church volunteer jobs at right. age 11? Yeah. And you're going to have to, like, set up the food for the social, and it's a job, and you do it every, every uh, you know, week, certain weeknights, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mother got me a sewing job when I was 13 for a seamstress that worked out of her home. Then when I was 15, I was cleaning horse stalls, and then I went out to my aunt's ranch. I had to do work out there. Um, then I also started a little sign painting business mm-hmm. when I was in high school. And that's sort of entrepreneur stuff. Mm-hmm. And you see what skills I learned painting signs mm-hmm. and selling them, making custom-made signs, is the same skills for selling my livestock. Because I learned to show off the portfolio. Mm-hmm. An interview for me was put the drawings out there and show the pictures. Mm-hmm. Okay, the lady today with the costumes, she showed me two gorgeous outfits that she made on on her phone, I said, "That's your portfolio, and your specialty could be, you know, like, you know, you know, fancy dresses for medieval times, right. for Shakespearean times, uh, and those would be your costume special." And I looked at those pictures and said, "These are professional grade costumes. Yeah, you can do this professionally." And I started out my business with livestock handling, one small project at a time. One project at a time. And the other thing I did is I wrote about them. Ah. That's another thing I did. Okay. So that's a great element, too. So everything that you do, have a portfolio, but also write about the things that you've accomplished. And you've written so many books. Can you give us a little overview of some of the books in case our listeners want to get a handle on them? Well, the very first book was Emergence Labeled Autistic, and I was approached by a publishing company on that. And then my next book was uh, in 1993 was Livestock Handling and Transport. And the textbook publisher approached me because they'd seen some of my papers. And then one of my most popular books, Thinking in Pictures, uh, a book agent approached me after Oliver Sacks had written an article about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, you need to jump on these opportunities. Yeah. Uh, I'm seeing too many parents today where there's a child that has a, you know, a diagnosis, autistic, dyslexic, ADHD, and they're just going nowhere. They're getting addicted to video games, mm-hmm. and they're not getting jobs. They're not having good outcomes. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm seeing too many verbal kids uh, that are not going shopping. They're mm-hmm. not learning basic skills. Right. Because when I was out working in large meatpacking plants in the 80s and the 90s, out on big construction projects, and they're building whole factories, and I was on those projects, and of course I got to walk around the whole entire project, one of the things I learned was that 20% of some of the really creative people I worked with that did drafting, laying out factories, inventing cleverly designed equipment, and owned metal fabrication shops and selling stuff around the world were either autistic, dyslexic, or ADHD. Mm-hmm. And I'm being serious. Yeah. And those people aren't getting replaced. Yeah. We're losing skills. We need people who can keep, uh, you know, power distribution equipment running and things like that. And it's going to be the people like me, the visual thinkers. Now, we're not very good at algebra. Well, you have that great quote uh, in the way that I see it that said, you know, that says, what, what would happen if the autism gene was eliminated from the gene pool? And you say, you'd have a bunch of people standing around in a cave chatting and socializing and not getting anything done. Well, that's the problem. You see, a brain can be more social, emotional, or a brain can be more interested in what they do. Mm-hmm. And I find a lot of things like figuring out how to design equipment, I find that extremely interesting yeah and and my kind of mind since we can't do algebra in the abstract we're getting screened out yeah and there's a huge shortage of car mechanics i want to just talk now about the different kinds of thinking and there's scientific research research for this i'm what's called an object visualizer everything i think about is a specific picture And then another kind of mind is the visual, spatial, mathematical mind. These kind of minds are going to be um, mathematics and music. Mm -hmm. And then you have your verbal thinkers. And verbal thinkers tend to be very top-down, vague concepts. But how do we actually implement something? Mm -hmm. You see, the visual thinkers are more bottom-up. Well, here's a situation where this particular cattle handling facility worked. Here's another situation where it did not. Okay, what was specifically wrong with it? Mm -hmm. It gets very specific. And we need all the different kinds of minds to, to do things. And I'm, I'm seeing too many parents getting way too overprotective of the kid. Now, what you want to do is step by step. Uh, we have to be careful with some of these kids' sensory problems, sensory overload. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprises can scare. But one of the things I learned very early on, you know, I made an accommodation myself. I don't remember long strings of verbal instruction. So when I was doing a job, I'd have a legal pad, and I would write down uh, all the things a job had to do, mm-hmm. all the parameters. I'd write it down. So I'd written instructions because mm. um, I don't remember long strings of verbal instruction. By my computer, I got very little working memory, but I have uh, you know, warehouses full of servers yeah. for memory. I love that. That's a great image right there. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in your talk today was uh, the the power of getting interested in things in dealing with fear. And I wonder if you might talk about that a little bit, how uh, if, if, if you have a, a child who's afraid of something or if you yourself are afraid of something, how you would use getting interested in it or learning about it to overcome well, that. Well, you might have a child afraid of loud noise and let's say something like a hairdryer. Well, or, or a vacuum cleaner. You let the child turn it on and off where they control it. That can often help. But when I was in my 20s, my two most feared things, airplanes <laughs> and public speaking. And I walked out of my very first public speech at a, at a, in graduate school. And what I learned is to have good slides. So if you panic, you go to the next slide 
or I need to have notes that are like bullet points right. for each thing I'm going to cover. Then I go to the next bullet point, you know, almost like a pilot's checklist. Right, right. Um, and that helped me. And then with the airplanes, I was in a very scary emergency landing when I was uh, young. And I had a chance to um, ride in the cockpit of a plane hauling heifers to Puerto Rico. It was the early 70s. And uh, then it started to get interesting. You've got to take that thing you're afraid of and make it interesting. Yes. Then it gets a lot less scary. Yes. It's sort of like you learn more about it. Yeah. Uh, it makes it less scary. I love that. Well, that's a perfect place for us to take our first music break. We have been talking about how awesome the music of the 60s and 70s is, and you love it. And we're also excited that it's so popular now, which is great. So the first song, I picked a few songs uh, from the 60s and 70s from a variety of things. And um, the first one is Born to be Wild, the Steppenwolf single. So you're listening to the Apex Hour. This is KSUU Thunder 91.1.
right. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is the Apex Hour. I am Lynn Vartan. And as always, you can find out more about our events on our website, which is suu.edu slash Apex. And if you're interested in the music that's played on the Apex Hour, there is a Spotify playlist that's called Played on Apex Hour. And you can also find that on our website, suu.edu slash Apex, under the podcast uh, tab. I am joined in the studio today by Dr. Temple Grandin, and we are having such a great time talking about learning, talking about students, talking about her career, talking about music from the 60s. Welcome back, Temple. It's great to be here. I would love to get into a little bit of talk about land stewardship. Uh, You visited one of our classes earlier today, and I thought it was just wonderful to hear you talk about um, some of your ideas about where we are right now in terms of land use. Uh, and I'd, I'd love for you to share some of your thoughts about that. Well, I've been doing a lot of thinking about, um, I'm, you know, been in my career for many, many, many years. And what's the future of the cattle industry? I've been in the cattle industry my whole career. And, you know, people are going to talk about making uh, meat in bioreactors and stainless steel vats. We're going to, you know, grow meat and things like that. You know, what's going to happen with the cattle industry? And, I've been learning more and more about range management, reading more about it, and learning some really important things. Like 20% of all the land in the world is grazing land. You cannot use it for crops. There's not enough water. Oh. And another thing I learned when we had an agronomist um, come and do a seminar at Animal Science is that the very best cropland in Iowa and Illinois was created by herds of grazing bison. That is a grazing animal. They are part of the land. Now, I've been on ranches all over the U.S. I've been to ranches in South America. I've been to ranches in Australia. I've seen cattle operations all around the world. And when grazing is done correctly with the right rotation, you can improve land. Now, you can also wreck land with grazing. When you do grazing right, it improves land. And is that we, because the nutrients are— That's right, because uh. what you do is uh, the— uh, The cattle fertilize the ground. Now, you've got to make sure they don't strip the land, and that's why you've got to do pasture rotation correctly, and that's going to be different in different parts of the world. But uh, good ranchers can be great stewards of the land and actually improve the land. We need our family ranchers. And, And there's more and more being learned about grazing, about rotational grazing, about integrating cover crops with um, crops such as corn or soy, where every third year you're grazing cattle on that same piece of ground, and you can drastically reduce the amount of chemicals you have to use. Mm -hmm. And actually, the kind of approach that might be the best in the long run is you take some of the organic ideas, but you still keep a few chemicals. In Mm -hmm. other words, sort of a hybrid approach Mm -hmm. where you're using the best of both. But the grazing animal is part of the land, and we need to be using them right. And when they're used right, they can sequester carbon and improve the land. Along those lines, I was curious, do you have an opinion about GMOs and their use or anything about that? Well, let's look at what the first GMO is, which most people don't know. What is it? It's not anything to do with Roundup, I can tell you that right now. (laughs) It is insulin is the first GMO. And back in the 70s, I was going over and visiting the Swift plant, and they used to collect the pancreas glands from cattle to make insulin. Oh, really? And you could get 10 days of life for a diabetic with a steer and five days from a pig. Then in the late 70s, our DNA insulin was invented, where you take bacteria and you grow human insulin in it 
recombinant DNA. That's your first GMO. Oh. Before the word GMO was ever invented. Huh. It's insulin. Wow. And uh, then in the 80s, uh, they switched over. They phased out the collection of the pancreas glands. Hmm. See, now you could get insulin, but it had to be a GMO. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And there's some GMOs that could have been really good, like, you know, vitamin A um, rice, you know, yeah. some of the uh, golden right. rice. Right. Um, you know, there's some really good things that we can we could do with GMOs. I mm. mean, we need to pro- proceed carefully right. with things. Right, right. You know, things like, you know, resistance to drought, a lot of good traits in crops. Mm-hmm. Uh, I take a view where we have to be, you know, careful about what we do, but mm-hmm. we move ahead and we do things. Yeah. And I also was curious, so how do you think that we as as a as a nation can encourage family farming in the right way? I mean, how do we make that shift to keep that well, alive? The, well, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association has been, you know, every, for a long time has had their sustainability uh, stewardship award. Um, the other thing is I've watched when – grazing change. I've been in this industry 50 years. And when the very first rotational grazing stuff came in, people thought it was crazy. And the thing that's interesting in a lot of things is little guys innovate, Mm -hmm. not the big guys, little guys innovate. And when you first start, they kind of laughed at, but then gradually something that was considered kind of offbeat 20 years ago becomes um, mainstream. Mm -hmm. And one of the grazing is going to be different in different parts of the country and in different parts of the world. Something that works in one place may not work somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, it's very variable. But a basic principle is that, that a lot of people don't realize is when you rotate a pasture, the green stuff regenerates before the roots. Oh, right. And you got to wait for the roots to regenerate. And you're going to need very good local advice uh, because you can do things wrong. Yeah. yeah. I've seen land ruined with grazing. I've also seen land greatly improved with grazing. And this is people think, oh, we're going to just kick all the cattle off the land. But the problem is, if you do that, then you don't have that rancher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Another basic thing with land is people care about land they own. A big problem both with anything is rented land. People are not good to rented land. Mm -hmm. I recently was out in California. I visited an operation that had been rented land and they'd have been really abused. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I wonder more more incentives to continue to own, to continue to keep land in the family sounds like a good idea. Well, we've got to um, we've got to be showing people more and more how we can actually improve right improve land, maybe good stewardships of land. But what people don't realize is twenty percent of the world, the whole world, you see in some other parts of the world, it's called step. Right, you uh-huh. hear that term S T E P P E. That that's grazing land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there've been parts of the world where the step land got ruined from overgrazing, so they threw all the livestock off. Now they're realizing they got to put them back on. Right, but you're going to have to start ro- rot- rotating those pastures. Yeah, and you've got to start making the livestock do it more the way they did the way the bison did it. Yeah, right. Where they bunch together, mow a patch, and move on. Yeah. Don't just spread out all over the patch and cherry pick it and eat all the candy off of it and leave the, exactly. um, the celery. Yeah. <laughs> As Fred Provenza, the famous grazing scientist, go, they eat the best and leave the rest. Of course, yeah. Right. They're eating the candy. I love that. And, and, and people are more and more learning about how to do these things right. But I see a good future for grazing animals. Great. Um, 
And there's a lot of different grazing animals. Cattle, sheep are just two of them. Staying on the animal topic a little bit, you were talking uh, in, in your work, you're involved in so much uh, innovative research, interesting projects. And one of the things that you were talking about in the in the class was about uh, animal perception and relating objects. And I, I think that was one something one of your students was working on. And I was wondering if you might talk about that. Um, that was very interesting on how animal perception, depending on the angle of an object, if you could talk about that a little bit. That's, all, that's our brand new project that was Megan Corgan's master's thesis published in 2021. And we looked at how... Um, uh, horses react to a rotated object. You, and the title of the paper's got American Quarter Horse in it. I don't know why a reviewer wanted that in the title, but they did. Huh. You can find it on Google Scholar. If you type in Temple Grandin and American Quarter Horse, I'm sure you'll find it. Yeah. But the real thing we were trying to do is I wanted to do a scientific experiment to prove observations I've been making for a long time, that animals get afraid of stuff that looks a specific way. They are sensory-based thinker. And this might help explain why does a horse just spook for no reason? So Megan went to Walmart and bought a children's playset, a colorful plastic playset that had a little slide and a little swing for a toddler. And she put it in an alcove of our CSU horse barn. And they walked fillies and colts. They were quarter horses because they were in our colt training program. But before the students started training them, they just they were trained to lead. And they walked them past this playset 15 times. And it was all done at a slow walk. Now, when they first walked by it, they'd stop. They would raise their head up or flare their nostrils. And then you walk them by it till they no longer react. And when you rotate that place at 90 degrees, it became a new object. Yeah. And the horses would stop again. Now, this was done at a slow walk. If this had been done at a gallop and the horse slammed on the brakes, somebody's going to get dumped. Yeah. And then I did another. That, that's our formal scientific paper. Now I have a scientific paper that shows that that, thing became something new when it was rotated. You see, a verbal thinker would look at a playset and go, it's a kid's toy. It's a playset. It's a playset. Yeah. But a horse doesn't know what a playset, especially young horses that young, would never seen a playset They're before. looking at it in that specific configuration, which you can then habituate them to. But if that configuration yeah. or that person... And they've never seen a child play on it. Yeah, right. So they've got no idea what the thing is for. And then I went up to a... Um, a a horse uh, horse meeting in, and they just had some western horses that were being trained they were riding uh, horses in western and I uh, I told them about the study and we got a big green plastic chair really weird large green plastic chair that just that we found on the place and they quietly rode by it at a walk until the horses would no longer stop this is all done at a walk it would have been dangerous than anything anything bigger than a walk and then we rotated the chair. Almost half the horses did a hard stop. Wow. Rotating that chair. Wow. And um, recently I was supposed to have a, a, a meeting with a, uh, Arizona 4-H over Zoom. And the leader fell off, got bucked off her donkey. Mm. And I told her about these studies. And she goes, hmm, I think there was a cattle skull on a fence. Mm-hmm. And they might have looked at it from the other direction. Yeah. You see, then she started thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. And, her, and she got very badly hurt, and we had to cancel the Zoom call. And Wow. One other question about kind of where we are right now in terms of uh, livestock and particularly with meat. 
um, and looking ahead to uh, being as smart as we can about the future. Do you think that uh, we have some good practices in place, but do you think that we are consuming too much and that's causing some bad practices like overfeeding and overweight? Is it related well, to the amount? One thing happening. Um, I worked with McDonald's Corporation back in 1999 to implement their animal welfare auditing program, and I figured out a very simple way to assess slaughter plants like percent stunned on the first shot where the cattle got unconscious instantly, you know, stuff like that, very simple scoring. And when you have a big buyer insisting on some standards, it works really well. And the good news is we didn't have to buy a bunch of expensive equipment. Right. In fact, a lot of the plants already had my systems, but they were not using them very well. Mm-hmm. And what this did is it forced them to start managing their, their stuff, mm-hmm. repairing stuff, managing stuff. And so I got really happy for about five years. Oh, things are working just great. Then we started seeing some handling problems that were caused with things wrong with the cattle. Mm-hmm. Lameness, stiff. Uh, some of this was too many growth promotants. Then some of it was genetics as we selected, especially Angus cattle for more and more heavier muscling. We started getting some leg conformation issues. Mm. Well, now the Angus Association realizes that's a problem and they're now got, you know, guidelines for selecting for better feet and legs. But the problem is if you over-select for any single trait genetically, you'll wreck your animal. Mm-hmm. I think we have to start looking at what is optimal. Mm-hmm. Okay, we, we select horses just to run and you get weird bleeding problems and muscle cramping problems. You know, what is optimal, not maximum? But we've got to have animals that we can, uh, uh, they're going to function. Another mistake that was made was uh, getting um, uh, beef cattle too big. Right. And they get too big for the carrying capacity of the land. We made that mistake back in the 70s, and then 10 years ago. I've been around for a long time. We made the same mistake. We forgot about the past. Do you and think- now they're, they're uh, realizing that, like in Nebraska, for example, you want a moderate-sized cow, not a giant, huge one. Right. Do you think that the amount of consumption is a is an issue? Should we be moderating our consumption of meat? In would that help? Well, that's a hard thing to say, but um, it's probably a lot of things we need to be moderating consumption. Right. Let's look at all the stuff that's on the container ships they can't get unloaded. Like there's a hundred container ships, you know, floating around outside of San Francisco and L.A. Half the stuff on those containers we don't need. Right. You know, clothing, that's another very wasteful, wasteful industry. Yeah. Um, And I I think one thing that COVID has done, it's made people aware of supply chain problems. Yeah. You know, like grocery store shelves aren't just magically filled. Right. There's a whole supply chain. Right. Right. And one thing very lucky here in the U.S., we've never starved. Yeah. I've been in countries where people have starved in the past. Went mm-hmm. to Japan about 10 years ago. I was shocked to see they were growing crops on the median strip between wow. the two highways. Oh, my gosh. There are no lawns in Japan. Yeah. Land is too valuable that you waste on lawns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That yeah. was um, one of the most shocking things I saw when I went to Japan. Huh. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for that. Well, time for another song. Okay. Um, so the next one I have is... I'm a Believer by the Monkees. I thought that might be kind of a fun one, very upbeat. So we'll check that out. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91, if I can get it to play, point one. Here we go. I thought love was only true in fairy tales And for someone else, but not for me 
everyone welcome back so we are taking a trip into the 60s in our music today and that was I'm a believer by the monkeys I mean how can you not feel good listening to that song I have been having just such an awesome conversation with Temple Grand and welcome back for another musical another talking break Welcome, Temple. It's great to be here. We want to start by making sure every you have so much information on both of your websites that are is available to the public. And so I would love for you to tell our listeners about your websites and where to find all of your great stuff. Well, I have two websites. So I have Grandon.com. That's just my last name, Grandon.com. That's my livestock website. And then I have TempleGrandon.com, all one word. And that is my autism website. Both websites have got, um, all my books are on them. And on the livestock website, I've got lots of videos on how to handle cattle, both my own videos and other people's videos that, that I have links to. Um, and I tried to make them have a lot of just practical information that people can use. So grandon.com and then also templegrandon.com. There's so much information on them and so many resources. And, um, and, and that's a great way to kind of turn into the next topic that we wanted to talk about is uh, doing things, 
making things, doing things, skills. Um, one of your books I know has projects for maybe young people who want to get involved in, in uh, doing some uh, goat farming and these kinds of things, all of that. So let's talk about skills and acquiring skills. We've got kids growing up today totally removed from the practical. One of the worst things that some of the schools have done in some parts of the country is taking all the hands-on classes out, cooking, sewing, woodworking, art, music, playing musical instruments, an auto shop, welding shop. Yeah. I worked with people that had large welding shops that built my equipment. Yeah. And when I look back at these people, they were undiagnosed autistic people. Mm -hmm. And they were extremely good at what they were doing. And I'm getting very concerned about losing skills. Yeah. There's too many kids playing video games in the basement that ought to be out there fixing electrical wires. Right. We also have got kids growing up not using tools. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I always like to talk about the different kinds of minds. Yeah. The visual thinkers like me, the object visualizers, we're going to be good at art, photography, uh, mechanics, all kinds of mechanical stuff, building yeah. stuff, and animals. Then your mathematical thinkers, they're good at the um, things like computer science, engineering, and music. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing that I observed working with large meatpacking plants is how the engineering work is divided up. My kind of thinker draws the entire factory, might have a title of drafting, and the, also makes all the mechanically clever equipment. Mm -hmm. And the degreed engineer will do boilers and refrigeration. They're more mathematical. But right now, in poultry and pigs, we want to build a new processing plant. We're importing the equipment from Europe yeah. because we took shop out 25 years ago, and we're paying for it. I am very concerned about losing skills. Yeah. Uh, about three years ago, I went out and visited the Steve Jobs Theater and the Apple Mothership Building, structural glass walls. They are from Germany and Italy. <laughs> Where There's a lot of very specialized stuff that we're not making anymore. And let's look at electronic chips. And right now they're trying to build factories for making that. But I've, I've been in contact with some of the people in the electronic chip industry. And I got a, I didn't get to go on the tour of one because of COVID, but I got to see a video that most people don't ever see. And let me tell you, there's plenty of clever engineering in there for my kind of mind to work on. Yeah, yeah. And we need these different kinds of minds. Yeah. And and the skill loss thing, I am very concerned about this. So what advice for parents? I mean, how do we make that shift? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening. They go like, yeah, yeah, you're right. But I mean, how do I do that? All of the, the pressures and all of the exposures that my kids have are all screens. It's all TV, movies, video games. How do we get that going again? Well, that's the reason why I did my books, uh, Calling All Minds my childhood uh, aviation projects in there, things like little parachutes I made out of scarves, little kites I built. I had to tinker to make them work. I've got another book, Outdoor Scientist. They're all things that don't cost a lot of money. We've got kids growing up today not using tools. They're not learning sewing. You know, these are things that are, would not be expensive to, you know, to put back in. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a kid with an autism label building very intricate um, trains that actually work out of Legos, mm -hmm. and nobody had ever introduced a tool. Mm -hmm. This guy was an adult. I saw him in uh, very recently. Mm -hmm. You know, see, this is the whole problem of label locking. Right. That's a term that a lady, a psychologist named Deborah Moore thought up, label locking. Right. And, and these kids are going nowhere. And some people say, well, you're just an old fogey in your 70s. You, well, you don't like video games. 
but these kids are not getting great jobs. Right. They're on a disability check playing video games. Right. When they ought to be out building factories, and I'm very worried about things like power infrastructure. You see, the person with autism is mildly autistic, and they love stuff like power plants. Mm-hmm. And they're going to make sure that they work. Right. And right. They care about them. Yeah. And we need people that care about that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you mentioned the labels, and I know that is something that, that you talk about a lot, because to be clear, you're not against the diagnosis, because that can be very helpful to people. But this label locking is where we really get into problems. Well, this is why I did a book with Deborah Moore named Navigating Autism. And the main purpose of this book is prevent parents, teachers, especially ones newly going into autism, and new therapists from getting so locked into the label that they can't imagine this kid's even capable of doing anything. The other thing that's a big problem is autism is going from Elon Musk. Elon Musk has autism. I always right. thought he did. Einstein to be in an autism program today. No language till age three. Right. But then you have the ones that remain very severe. They are not going to be doing a skilled trade or or fixing a power plant. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, you've got this huge spectrum. Right. Now, there's things as a visual thinker. And I'm, I can't do abstract algebra. Mm-hmm. And then people say, well, you need that to do some of the stuff you do. Yeah, I memorize the formulas for things mm-hmm. like sizing air cylinders. Mm-hmm. I just memorize the formula. Or let's say a veterinarian dosing drugs. You memorize those formulas. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not algebra in the abstract. That I know how to do. Right. So you were saying, you know, you you with all the algebra that's in things now, that sometimes you think you might not have gotten the degrees that you have today. I don't think I would have graduated from high school. I got into a small startup college through the back door. Mother pounded open the back doors. A little college that's only been running for two years. Thank goodness the freshman math class was not algebra. It was actually, they called it finite math, statistics, probability, and matrices. And with a bunch of tutoring, I was able to do that. And getting through statistics, I had to have a ton of tutoring. But there was a bit more stuff in that that I could visualize. So and, you- and But I'm concerned today that I wouldn't be able to graduate. But I have seen people in the meat industry get a job on the line and 15 years later build the, the, the new plant edition. Right. So what would I do today? I've often thought, what if someone waved a magic wand and I was 18 years old, right flunking now. out of high school right now? Yeah. I'd what do you think? You know I go? Yeah. Amazon warehouse. It's a door. Uh, and I'm going to learn every job on that line. Uh-huh. And there was actually a, a guy with autism that went to work in Amazon warehouse, started having lunch with the rocket scientists. He's working on that now. Oh, that's awesome. And that, the thing is, is is that I? But you see, I have enough knowledge to see where I could go. Yeah. Now, if I just worked in some little family shop, yeah, you don't have you know you don't have the flexibility. Yeah. But what I know now, and I've seen this career path, like there's a guy I call him Willy Wonka in stainless steel. He has a private jet. I've been on that jet. It took me to his factory. I can't tell you where it is. Right. But we had a half an hour discussion of what diagnoses he would have been. Every diagnosis in the yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible student. Dropped out of school. Yeah. Washing equipment in a food processing plant. Now he owns a gigantic plant. Yeah. Jillion dollar business now. So for the parents who have students in school that maybe are failing or flunking out, what what advice do you have for them? Uh, Not so much for the young, you know, maybe their school age, high school, going into college. Let's just talk about some of the big problems. Okay. Uh, Getting overprotected and not learning basic skills like money and shopping. Mm -hmm. Very big issue. Huge issue. Uh, Getting bullied. 
Yeah. And one of the ways to deal with that is friends through shared interests. Like one of my shared interests was model rockets. Mm -hmm. Well, that was something I had to get exposed to that by the science teacher. Also, horses are gigantic uh, interest. Um, the other thing is some accommodations they might need. And one real simple one that I figured out is I cannot remember long strings of verbal information. And so when I was doing a project meeting for a job, I'd always write down exactly what they wanted this job to do. Yeah. I said, I like to have it written down. Yeah. And I've heard about people losing a good job in construction because they got a new boss that would just tell them what to do and they couldn't remember. Mm -hmm. They just asked the boss to text the instructions. Yeah. That would have solved the problem. Um, I have to find out exactly what the kid's problem is. Mm -hmm. But I'm seeing an algebra requirement keeping a kid out of a welding class. Mm -hmm. That's totally ridiculous. Yeah. And the people I worked with are not getting replaced, and we need these people to keep factories working, build factories. Um, okay, we're building ship factories. There's going to be plenty of jobs in there for my kind of mine, and we can't do any of the math. That's for the computer people to do. But somebody has to keep all the stuff in there that moves going. So you seem to have had that fire, that tenacity, you know, all along. Is that is that true, or is that something that came later, do you think? I had, no, when I was in my 20s, I had a huge motivation to prove I wasn't stupid. Oh. This was a huge, huge motivation. I am going to design this, fit, dip that, prove I'm not stupid. And when I didn't know how to do some of the concrete reinforcement stuff, I didn't know how to draw those drawings, I got on that phone until I found somebody who could send me the engineering specs for the uh, concrete reinforcement on the dip vats. I knew the cattle handling stuff. That I knew. Yeah. Well, well, that's a great inspiration to young people to just, you know, like to grab that fire, you know, to, to, to get yourself out there and to get that tenacity to move forward. Well, I just talked to this lady that today that's uh, made some beautiful costumes. Yeah. And she should be working professionally in costume design. You got a Shakespeare festival here. I saw stuff on her phone. Yeah. That could be used at the Shakespeare festival. Yeah. Well, how do you get into it? Mm -hmm. You take that phone to that festival, and you go around and you show it to people until you sell a job. It's one job at a time. Yep. That's how you do it. One job at a time. One job at a time. How about books of inspiration? Are, were there any books that were particularly meaningful to you in your journey? Well, one thing was Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking. My aunt gave me that book um, when I was a you know late teens. I also had some very good mentors on um, and my aunt out at the ranch, my science teacher really got me motivated. I can't emphasize enough the importance of mentors. Yeah. My mother, when I was little, always, um, you know, um, you know, when we were kids, we had to dress up in our good clothes and greet dinner guests. Yeah. And I look back on that, and that was really important because I had the guts to walk up to the farm arrangement editor and get his car, just like the movie showed it. Yeah. I actually did that. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and, other people, first of all, wouldn't see the door to opportunity or they'd be too scared to go up and get the card. Mm -hmm. I went up and I got the card, just like the movie showed it. That's that awesome. That scene is true. Yeah. And the movie, again, is called Temple Grandin, yes, it and it's available on all streaming services, and uh, you can find it. It was made by HBO, is that yeah, right? it's HBO. And it's interesting, the lady that was responsible for that movie is a lady named Emily Gerson Sains, mother of an autistic adult, nonverbal, and she wanted to do it right. That's and awesome. And she had to really work hard to get the right team of people. It shows how my visual thinking works. It shows my mentors really good. 
Also, all the projects shown in that movie I actually did. That's awesome. Well, speaking of projects, what's next for you or that you can talk about? Because I know you, you have some projects that are under close contract. But what, what, what's exciting you in your research right now? Well, right now we're just finishing up. Uh, some of the, we're starting the copy editing on a book on visual thinking because I'm very concerned that my kind of kids, we're just getting addicted to video games. And we're the ones you need to fix all the stuff. Yeah. What I, what I call the clever engineering department. Yeah. I'm, I was shocked in 2019, went to a beautiful brand new poultry processing plant. They said it came over in 100 shipping containers from Holland. Wow. That was a wake-up call. Yeah. That's you know, right should now be in the spot market, shipping containers are like 17 grand, I think, the last time each. Like, you got to be kidding. Yeah. Um, that wasn't what they used to cost. No, I know. Yeah. You see, and being a visual thinker, I see it. Yeah. And I was thinking about how we were going to ship some equipment to Australia and, and designing it so we could fit it in a shipping container. Yeah. You see, my mind's my mind's very associative, but I'm very worried about this. Yeah. We need our visual thinkers. They're yeah. the ones that are going to make sure the wires don't fall down and start fires and all kinds of bad stuff. Absolutely. Well, I always, we're almost out of time. This hour just flew by. I, I always ask one last question. And the question is, what's what's turning you on this week? And it, really, it can be anything. It could be a book or a movie or a favorite food or a song or something that you saw. And it's just a, a way for our listeners to get kind of a another little insight into, um, you know, who you are. Well, so I talked to the, this lady today that was on the autism spectrum that makes beautiful costumes. I hope I've motivated her to go out and start doing a business uh, and be successful at that. That is awesome. That's why I do these talks. I've had parents come up to me and say, well, 10 years ago, uh, my son went out and got a job and he just blossomed. Yeah. And and, uh, thank you. That reminds me of the quote that I have from you in my notes that says that you don't want your thoughts to die with you. You say, I want to have done something. I'm not interested in power or piles of money. I want to leave something behind. I want to make a positive contribution. Know that my life has meaning. Well, one of the things that gives life meaning is if I do something that to help a family have their kid get out and get a successful career, that's doing that kind of stuff as meaning. You see a I'm into real stuff. Okay, I design a piece of equipment and it works really well. That That's something that has really? meaning. Yeah. I'm interested in real things, not abstract mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, once again, the websites are grandin.com and templegrandin.com. And so many books, I mean, that are just uh, absolutely fantastic. And um, just to close, I just want to say thank you so much for spending this time with me. It's been such an honor to talk to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right, everyone. Well, we'll see you next time. And here we are saying goodbye from the Apex Hour. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU's Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.